Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. I know Place Like Home family. We're so excited to be back and to offer you this bonus episode. We also have a brand new season coming at you very soon. Uh, but we wanted to mention some sad news. Our our friend and podcast guest, Bernadette Demiantioff, who is the chair of the Gwich'in Steering Committee and a leader in the fight to protect the Arctic Refuge, um, had her son passed away this past week from, he was murdered by gun violence. And we just want to send all of our love to Bernadette and everyone who heard her story. And also we're going to put a link to a donation page in the show notes. If you're able to support her family during this very difficult time, we'd be so grateful. Um, all right, let's, let's get back to the show. This episode of No Place Like Home is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to get out there and explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our 4 million members and supporters who are working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. And now, on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner, a climate activist living on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. And I'm Marianne Hitt, climate activist and director of Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign living in the West Virginia Hills. And this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Listeners, me and Marianne have been missing y'all so much. We have been hard at work on a new season, which we'll be rolling out very soon. Yes, this season we will be exploring spirituality and climate change. And this is not just for those of you out there who are part of an organized religion or a faith community, but it's for anyone who is feeling a deep ache about the state of our climate and who's interested in learning from our ancient wisdom traditions about both how to build a movement, how to wrestle with questions of morality and justice, and also how to sustain ourselves in the midst of doing some very hard work. And we want to hear from you, our listeners, about where you're at on your spiritual journey and what kind of practices nourish and sustain you and help you find courage in the face of climate change. We'd especially like to hear what texts or readings from whatever faith or spirituality or even philosophy that have helped you find the spiritual strength and courage to face the climate crisis. You can record a voice memo, just introduce yourself, let us know where you're from, identify what the reading is, read it to us, and then share it via email. So it goes something like, Hi, my name is Anna Jane. I'm from Perdido Beach, Alabama. Here is a passage from Cleo Gabron's The Prophet that really speaks to me and gives me courage. And then you read it. And then you send it to noplacelikehomepodcast at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear what you all are going to send in. We know it is going to speak to the hearts of all of our listeners out there. So Anna Jane, hi, we're back with a bonus episode as a sneak peek to our new season. And I'm so excited and I'm glad I caught you because you have been running around everywhere. Oh, yeah, seriously. I mean, actually, you do know because you, you travel this much too sometimes. I know we're going to dig into this a lot more during the new season, but can you do just a quick sneak peek of what you've been up to for our listeners? 
Yeah. So I'm working on this really exciting project called the Good Energy Project that the Sierra Club has been a huge part of catalyzing and and making happen. And really, Marianne, you have been a huge part of. So thank you. Basically, it serves as a consultancy that helps writers in TV and film and some digital content do more and better climate storytelling. We have been meeting with writers and working with them directly on how to bring these, uh, you know, kind of, you know, making climate entertaining, essentially, which and but also, of course, identifying what kinds of narratives are, are really important and inspiring. Every show and story is different, so it's very individualized based on who the characters are and the world that they live in. And my kind of thinking is that if you're writing a story that is set in the current era or the near future era, your characters are grappling with climate change. And it feels a little bit strange that we're not seeing that reflected in the characters we love on TV and film. So we are working very hard to change that. And we've been in kind of a soft pilot phase for the past really six months, um, and we're going to officially launch early next year. Well, that is so exciting. And, you know, I really believe in what you're doing because I think shifting the culture and and telling better stories about climate change is a critical piece of this work and something that we have neglected as a movement. And so it has been really inspiring to watch you kick this off. And I think it's also a great segue to this bonus episode that we have for our listeners as we get the new season ready. We wanted to um, prime the pump here with a conversation about climate storytelling. Our last season was about emotional and the psychological components of facing climate change. And through that, we also found ourselves in a lot of conversations about how to talk about this better. And, uh, and we have a, a surprise slash gift for our listeners here with a conversation you had about that on another podcast. Yes, it was with our friend Amy Westervelt of the Drilled Podcast. Being out here working with writers and creators and storytellers, I can't tell you the hunger there is for more compelling and better climate storytelling in popular media. And so I'm I'm super excited to share this conversation that me and Amy had also with our friend Marianne Anise Hegler and amazing director Adam McKay and also David Wallace-Wells about what are some of the positive narratives that we want to be sharing more of, that we want to be putting more out into the world. I'm so excited to share this. And she actually did it. This is a two-part episode. We're going to share the positive ones, so the stories and narratives that we want to see more of. But if you want to go back and listen to the bad climate narratives one, you can do that on Drilled Podcast. And if you haven't checked out Drilled, um, Amy Westervelt is a brilliant podcaster and journalist, and Drilled is like the true crime podcast of climate change. She goes back uh, in a very really gripping way and uh, tells the story of all the climate cover-ups by Exxon and others, and it's really like binge listening material. And so we were honored to partner with her on this episode and bringing this to you all and um, can't can't encourage you enough to check out Drilled and all of Amy Westervelt's amazing work. So take a listen to this special episode and we are going to be back soon with our brand new season of No Place Like Home that we cannot wait to share with all of you. Okay, so we've talked about the problematic there. What are the narratives that you're excited to see, either new ones or like ones that have been around for a while? Um, and what are what are you seeing in terms of just like general interest in climate narratives? 
I come out of the evangelical church. My dad's an evangelical megachurch pastor. Yeah. So I've always been really interested in, in religious and spiritual and faith narratives, mm-hmm. both because it is strategically valuable to engage people of faith in climate activism. Right. Um, but also because I, and I didn't always understand this, but I th- I do now, like reflecting, having done this for a while, yeah. that one of the reasons I've been drawn to that work is because it gives you really powerful narratives and yeah. a very specific audience to work with. But for example, I did have, uh, and this is getting kind of personal and then we can get into the, yeah. the more sort of big picture, but um, especially after the election, I went through this like really dark period with like half of America, I feel like. (laughs) And like existential, like, what am I doing? Can we even fight climate change? There were three narratives that like personally helped me come out of that really dark space, which I actually do think we're be, you know, that we're seeing in, in different ways. And I think they're, hopefully they're helpful to people. Yeah. One is the Buddhist narratives around non-attachment and being comfortable with change. Mm-hmm. Like I've been re- reading a lot of Pema Chodron about mm-hmm. like being comfortable with uncertainty. And the reality is like this life is uncertain period. Even if right. climate change is not a part of it, like we're all going to die. We're right. all going to face loss. And like, right. if we just like walk around in a state of anxiety and fear all the time, we're not able to enjoy the beauty and the the love and the curiosity and and the wonderful things that this life has to offer and this earth has to offer change is like the only thing that's certain in this life right like we get so attached to like the way things are but when you even think about like the past 10 years things have changed dramatically not only in the past 100 years right and so i do think narratives that help people grapple and wrestle with change as not necessarily being a bad thing, but a part of life and like potentially a really beautiful thing are important. Staying on the spiritual narrative track, I definitely like rebelled my way right on after out of Christianity when I was like young, (laughs) like, like 16, peaced out and was like, I'm done with that. I am a heathen now. But I did find like into my 20s grappling with, you know, scary life things that I do require some spiritual practice and and the stories that help us make that's why people are drawn to religions they're stories that make us help us make meaning out of the world and still for a long time I shied away from the Christian stories but I did I don't know I sort of got drawn back into it into the more the progressive Christianity thing so I've basically have been doing that for the past like five or six years um, I call myself Episcopalian Buddhist pantheist agnostic. <laughs> um, but after that really dark depression, after the election, I did go to an Easter service on that next Easter. Yeah. And Easter, like growing up, even when I was like a kid, I didn't like it. Like it felt too shallow to me. Like we're going to eat chocolate and wear bright colors and talk about the same damn story every single year. Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, I think because I was in such a dark place, like yeah. the whole narrative around like life overcoming death and resurrection and like hope against all odds it was incredibly meaningful to me yeah to like to really sit in a moment of like this story is important there's a reason yeah. that people are drawn to this story because yeah, it's like a rebirth thing oh yeah, yeah like and it's and it plays out in other religions and spiritualities too for mm-hmm. sure but like that whole um rebirth or or facing death and darkness and and overcoming it with light and goodness like that has become a very important narrative for me (laughs) and uh, and I think it's one we definitely need in fighting climate change and I guess this one this is the other one that like personally meant a lot to me that year as I was um, going through my own rebirth process (laughs) um was um, it's the Japanese art of of taking broken pottery and filling it with gold. 
And so, so cool. Yeah, yeah, like that. And yeah. I'm not even going to try to say it because I'm going to mispronounce it. Okay, just jumping in here because Anna Jane couldn't remember the name of this particular type of Japanese pottery, Kintsugi. so I looked it up. It's Kintsugi, and here's a little explainer of it. This idea of golden rejoicing, like bringing these different golden. aspects Sugi of rejoicing, part of our this idea of together. golden rejoicing, like bringing these different aspects of a fragmented part of ourselves together. Because I felt so broken, and I felt like yeah. the whole world was broken, and like I didn't know how to put it back together again, and I didn't know how to put myself back together again. And we don't have to put it back together again. We just have to like take the broken parts and make something beautiful. Mm-hmm. And and we can still do that, you know. Like we don't, we can't fix climate change in the sense that we can't stop all the suffering that's already happening, right? Or but we can work with this gorgeous work, you know, life and opportunity and earth, and still make beautiful things, and, yeah, and make beautiful relationships and beautiful art, and um, and hopefully stop the worst impact so that other people can do all those things yeah. well into the future. Yeah. Um. So that's like on a kind of personal level and then I would say like on a on a broader spectrum like the kinds of narratives that I would love to see more people working with one is like envisioning what this more beautiful world looks like yeah because I run it like everyone it's so crazy to me like how much easier it is for like writers and creatives to envision shit going to hell you know like the the apocalypse apocalypse. maybe it's because those narratives have been in our culture since you know like forever like I I was you know they are like I was thinking about this too because I do feel like in the religious context too hell and the devil and all those things are just like much more viscerally described than heaven and the after you know like it's like I never thought about that I'm like maybe that's why like we have all these details about the bad stuff but like the good stuff it's just it'll be great you know yeah yeah it it's is weird. It's, it's strange and it's hard, but we need to start going there. We need to start yeah. envisioning what does this better world that we're working to create look like? And not just like there's going to be more solar panels, but like yeah, how does this totally. society And not just like and capitalism like, will still work, guys, yeah. so that's good. You know, like I hate that. I hate it so much. Like yeah. I feel like we hear it in every democratic debate right now too, even with like Elizabeth Warren and to a certain extent Bernie Sanders who are like the most progressive candidates. It's all, it's all about climate change as a jobs generator or like, and I understand that of course there's you know, they're playing the game of politics and there are certain things that you have to speak to to get elected and, like, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, actually, like, I'd love to see a show on TV where it's 20 years into the future, 50 years into the future, and, like, maybe it's not... It's actually awesome. Well, or or it's just, like... Because my theory is Uh that probably we're going to avert the very worst impacts. Knock on wood, let's all pray. Yeah. And, like, take action. Pray with our hands and feet and voices. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. But, but we're probably, we're still going to, so probably we will work towards some of our solutions and actually change our society in meaningful ways. And hopefully it will be better, but we're still going to face really dire consequences. So what, what does that in between look like? Let alone like the utopic version, but like, let's give us ourselves a picture or a vision or something to work towards yeah that like and by us I mean like all of us you know because even I I mean just to be totally honest I've been doing this since I like was 20 and I still struggle with imagining that and I think it's because I haven't ever really like challenged myself to go there and so and I would love to see like 
creative and artist. And, and I think another one that like really strikes me is this more, um, intersectional narrative really like I would love to see more stories and characters um and just conversations about indigenous wisdom Mm -hmm. and like you know like one thing that I think both capitalism and a lot of modern forms of Christianity do is kind of subjugate the earth as this like machinery or something that we are control and have domination over and that's such a problematic narrative because we depend on the earth we are part of the earth we are part of an ecosystem and so and and so I think that like reversing and undoing that damage by listening to indigenous elders and wisdom and voices is a really critical part of, of how we kind of reset our relationship with the earth, yeah. especially in talking about climate change. Yeah. I mean, I've been working on this um, campaign to save the Arctic refuge because it's yet again under threat. And just working with the Gwich'in people, I mean, it's like so... First of all, it's just such a powerful story because they are facing the threat of climate change. Like the Arctic is melting faster than anywhere else in the world. Yeah. And faster than anyone expected. And faster than anyone expected. And now they're also facing the threat of fossil fuel development on their sacred land. And what gets me is like my family has been on our land and on the Gulf Coast of Alabama. I think I'm the sixth generation. Wow. So like a little over a hundred years ish, um, maybe 150. Yeah. Um, and I feel like such a deep connection to that place. And the, even yeah. just when I, I forget sometimes when I leave, but when I go back, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like you, I mean, it's like you belong somewhere. Like, you know, the way the air feels and yeah. the way it smells and the way the plants are and the way the birds sound. And, yeah. um, and yeah, and it's just, it's so intimate and it makes me feel like myself, yeah. you know, and that's, but I can't, and, and when I think about the fact that we will probably lose it, it makes me very sad yeah. <laughs> and like heart, it's heartbreaking. And it's yeah. one of the reasons I live there now, because if I'm one of the last generations who gets to experience it, yeah. I want to experience it, you yeah. know, like I want to, to, to witness how miraculous that place is, um, but what really gets me in working with indigenous peoples, like the Gwich'in, is like they've been on their land 30,000 years. Wow. <laughs> like, you know, it's like I wow. can't even possibly imagine the depth of connection that yeah. you would feel to a place. If, you know, like it's it's mind blowing. Yeah. And, and it's just so crazy to me that we're thinking about destroying the sacred land, which they called yeah. the, um, the birthplace of all life. Yeah. You know, we're thinking about destroying that which would destroy their culture. Right. You know, it's essentially ecocide for like a little bit of oil that we definitely don't need because we're already burning the planet. And it goes back to stories, you know, like they want to drill in the Arctic because Republicans and corporate interests have wanted to drill in the Arctic fucking ever. That's true. And they it's just, like, like a weird, it's a like, weird, like big dick thing. I big dick like. thing. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> And, like, they want to win. It's a domination narrative. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's a domination narrative, and it's disgusting. And I think a huge antidote to that is indigenous wisdom and, like, the connection narrative and the fact that we are absolutely interdependent on each other. Yeah. But anyways, I I think all of the research that our friend Renee Lertzman, Dr. Renee Lertzman, is doing on just, like, how important it is to be real and honest and raw and vulnerable about 
what it's like being a human alive right now and yes. how scary it is. I think it's one of the reasons these kids are so powerful because they just don't mince words. I would love to see more stories that are nuanced around not so much like yeah. hero man saves the world right. or even hero woman saves the world, but right. like you know, some of yeah. the most amazing women and activists and, and men too. Yeah. I've ever I mean true heroes yeah. are also real human beings. Yeah. Like, like have deal with financial issues and like boyfriend issues or girlfriend, you know, like have yeah. like there's totally full human full human stories. Cause I yeah. have I have this theory that like a lot of people look at climate activists might be shifting now because the kids are just like completely killing it and bringing a whole different perspective but yeah. they either see us as like the crazy crunchy annoying hippie neighbor right um who's like shaming you about your recycling or flying too much or whatever yeah which there's a lot of tropes like that on tv yes. <laughs> and it's and it, mm-hmm. it's annoying but yeah um or they see us as like superheroes where it's just like so divorced from who they can imagine themselves being right that they can't they don't see themselves in those characters. And it's, totally. Yeah. And it's like, I want to see, I want to see people who care about climate change. They don't even have to be activists. It's like real human beings who care. Yeah. Who are like flawed. Yeah. Who, because that's the true like, story. Also love junk food. Yeah. And like, yeah, I know. I know. I, yeah. I will say, I, I thought of one more narrative. Yeah. Okay. Adrienne Marie Brown mm, has. I love her. Yeah. Yes. She's amazing. For one, her whole like work around pleasure activism and so actually good. like so important yeah. to like find beauty and pleasure in all of this crazy work that we're doing. Because yeah. <laughs> it's not only because like we need to enjoy this beautiful life that we've been given. Right. But also because I really, it does make us better activists if we're not just like in a state miserable of all the miserable time. <laughs> misery and like fear. And yeah. Um, but what the other thing that she talked a lot about, so we did a podcast with her and, and we called it welcome to the apocalypse. We're glad you're here. Uh-huh. And it was basically like the idea that like, especially people of color, especially African Americans in the United States, they have been facing incredible oppression and suffering and apocalypses yeah. for their entire existence on this continent. You yeah. know, like there were people who lived and died in slavery and yeah. never seeing freedom, only believing that maybe it was possible, you right. know? And like, right. yeah. like where I, I've been studying a lot of the civil rights movement history because I'm from the deep South and unfortunately my family wasn't on the right side of history. Yeah. And, um, but just like really listening to people like Marianne Ice Hegler and Adrian Marie Brown about yeah. the fact that like, like I loved Marianne Ice's essay about how like, this isn't the first existential threat, like, <laughs> yeah. like black people have been facing existential threats for forever, yeah. <laughs> you know? And like all yeah. of a sudden, you know, white privileged people are faced with an existential threat and we think it's the first one, right. you know, and given like, this is like all humans, but still, like, I think yeah. we can learn an enormous amount from people who have faced overwhelmingly scary things before yeah. and, and still been, you know, resilient and, right. and, and found, even, you know, found art and joy and yeah. connection and relationship going through scary things, you know, yeah. that's, um, so yeah, I think that's a really, like, looking to our, um, our friends who are people of color and really, um, studying those histories, I think, is really critical. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, I've um, written about this that I feel like actually, I don't think I. I kind of feel like the only narrators that are that like are capable right now of writing. Um, I don't know of like crafting narratives that are 
real solutions or actually envisioning a totally different system Mm -hmm. are not going to be the people who benefit from the current system. Mm, (laughs) Yeah. Like, like it's, it's generally not the people who benefit from the status quo that change it, you know? And like, and, and I think it's really important that people not hear that and go, Oh, what are you saying? There's no place for me. Like this idea that you have to either be in charge or the loudest voice or not involved at all Mm -hmm. is so American. And so again, focused on this like individual Individual thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 just take a minute, listen to, you know, explore these other ways of thinking and these other perspectives, you know, try to, support those that's super important and learn from them yeah and be curious about them like that's yeah. yeah I think I'm really drawn to courage narratives in general like I yeah. love like that Kate Marvel friend Dr. Kate Marvel badass yes. climate scientist she was so absolutely great. hilarious she's so funny <laughs> so yeah. funny she wrote this essay we need courage not hope yes. and I loved it because I was like that yes. especially at that point in my life which was during that pretty dark depression I couldn't find hope you know, like I was really, right. but like courage is something I could wrap my head around. I, I would love to see more of those stories. Yeah. And not just like the superheroes showing up and saving the world, but like right. what does courage look like in intimate everyday ways? What does it look like when you work collaboratively and together? I'm working with a lot of writers right now. Yeah. And I think it's hard for people to wrap their head around climate change because it does feel so big and overwhelming and existential. Yeah. That, I mean, the way that I think about it now is like, it is a pervasive and ongoing part of our life and it will be from now until the foreseeable future. Like your children's children are going to be dealing with this on some level. Right. So like if you are working on a story or a show um, or a film that is taking place in the modern world or in the near future, those characters are wrestling with climate change. Yeah. How they wrestle with it, I think, is based on your characters, you know, like how they're set in this world. So that's to me, it helps it a lot when I'm thinking about how to do climate storytelling to think about it really rooted to a place and a story and a character. Yeah. And, um, and then it, I think becomes much more accessible. Yeah. You you kind of can envision how they would react to it, how it would organically come up in their lives and their relationships. Right. That it's like a lens on the story, not like the story, the topic or the focus of the story. Yeah. And I do think Mm -hmm. I would love to see more projects and content come out where climate is a bigger part of this plot line or story, or there's characters who are climate actors activist and yeah you know like that but I also am just really fascinated and intrigued about the you know just how climate interweaves into our lives like if you are paying attention on this planet right now you're thinking about this in some way it is probably coming up in your life in some way Mm -hmm. and um people respond to it in different ways based on their circumstance and their experience and and I'd love to see more characters um doing that organically within the you know the worlds and the shows that they live in because I am like the the part of me that comes from a family of artists and and has like a deep appreciation for writing and storytelling and art just as its own thing not for as any sort of medium for a social cause but just it's a beautiful powerful part of our of our human existence yeah like I don't actually think you can talk about I don't think you can force climate into a story if it doesn't work. You know, no. like, I think it has to work for the characters in the world that you're building or right. that you're working on. And mm-hmm. so, but I do think that there are so many more ways that climate shows up for stories set in the current era or yeah. near future era yeah. that aren't being talked about or interwoven. Um, it's almost like striking, especially with TV, 
it's like 0.1% of shows, you know, like, or 0.01% of shows have, have had any sort of meaningful, even conversation about climate, yeah. let alone like a story time or character development or, you know, like something more involved. Mm-hmm. And that like, it's become, it's beginning to feel like it doesn't reflect our actual experience anymore. Right. You know what's crazy about that, too, is that I happen to watch a lot of kids' cartoons. Yeah. (laughs) Because I have two kids. And um, I hear it so much more in kids' TV shows. Oh, fascinating. Than I hear it in In adult adult TV shows. Which is fucking nuts. I know. It's like, you know, it's basically like Big Little Lies to the story, which I loved. Because it was about climate anxiety and I'm fascinated by, like... The mental health connections. Even to this. then, it was um, the little girl that was experiencing it. Yeah, a grown up. Yeah, isn't that weird? I'm yeah. like, well, no. So, uh, no surprise then that it's like the kids that are like the ones we have to do something yeah. about this. Well, yeah, and then and then Madam Secretary had a couple of great episodes, and I'm yes. partial to because I worked on one of them, yeah. <laughs> and one one of the characters like loosely based off my life. <laughs> Um, and years and years I've heard has to, I haven't seen it yet. I years and years is actually, it's good. Yeah. I thought they did a really good job because they did the thing of like, it's a lens. They never really get into like specific yeah. climate change, it's like but it's like migration is happening. Mm-hmm. And like, like it's, it's, I thought they maybe of all the shows I've seen incorporate climate change. I thought they were like, they did the best job of really doing this thing that you're talking about of like it's a lens it's on a part the story of the it's not yeah like, and like now we are going to talk about climate you yeah, know like which I yeah love. like i think super good it's yeah. so powerful i'm gonna play a little tape from someone who's in film and tv right now that is interested in climate change which yes. is adam mckay yes Here's, here he is talking about his his take on all this stuff you know, I, I, I think we're living in a time, and I'm just going to talk about the United States because the reaction to the climate crisis is very different depending on where you are around the world. Some countries have really taken action. Uh, some countries are starting to take action. Some countries, you know, like Russia is trying to spin it as a positive thing. But I don't think you find the levels of denial anywhere else like the United States. And we, and we know that a lot of that is from money that the big oil companies put out there, the misinformation. But it even goes deeper than that. I I think we're also living in a a country, a society with an entertainment machine that has never been seen before in the history of life. There's never been thousands of channels, streaming, podcasts, music, billboards, interactive, constant, constant, constant phone stimuli and and all of that is profitized you know all of that is is for money so there's a giant economy around keeping us all as happy media consumers and nothing is a bigger bummer than telling everyone you first off we're all going to die second off you have to change all these habits that you've grown up with that you're used to and you have to start looking at the world in a completely different way i mean we know from the research of kahneman and tversky that changing the way you think or as they call it thinking slow actually hurts a little bit like you actually sweat a little your heart rate goes up it's unpleasant as opposed to habitual thinking or thinking fast which is a breeze which we all love to do So I I think we're confronting a couple different things. I think the oil money certainly swung this giant media apparatus in our country in a certain direction. But I also think this media apparatus is adverse to 
to radical change. It's adverse to truly bad news. It likes bad news that scares you a little bit to make you a vulnerable consumer, but it doesn't like revolutionary bad news. Um, And I think that's kind of what we're staring at. I mean, I I have friends, obviously, I'm sort of in the media. I make movies and TV shows, and I have friends who are journalists, and they've told me. They've just flat out said when they talk about the climate crisis, their ratings go down. And and I think Chris Hayes even said that like on Twitter. Like, that's, that's who that that's who said it right? to me. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a long talk with Chris Hayes about this yeah. and why why aren't we doing more? Why aren't people running lower third crawls that say emergency breaking news? You know, like why aren't we using those graphics that we all know and are trained to respond to? And and, yeah. and he's he's a great guy and he's really trying to do the best he can. And he told me he said. He did a whole week uh, dedicated to it, and he said his ratings plummeted. Mm-hmm. And in a strange way, that may be the biggest problem we're facing. We need all the people talking about climate change in a myriad of different kinds of ways yeah. that are going to inspire some people and turn some people off. But like, for the most part, with the exception of like the narratives that are driven and paid for by fossil fuel companies. Right. If, you know, writers and artists and media and everyday humans, pastors, what have you, are talking about climate change nine times out of 10, 95 times out of 100, that is a good thing. Like, and that is not a bad thing. And so that's a personal thing for me. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I, I want to break down those barriers so that everyone who has creative ideas or interesting stories or interesting ways of looking at this yeah. can bring that and, and offer us something new yeah. to see yeah. and feel. Here's Mary Anais Heglar again on that front. Well, I think the space has been democratized to a good degree thanks to social media and thanks to, you know, this next generation, Gen Z, which... As a generation of honey badgers, they don't give a fuck. And I love it, right? Like, it's been way too much fuck giving in the environmental space. Way too much of it. Um, And they they don't traffic in that at all. And they've completely changed the narrative to something that is more about urgency. They're not afraid of scaring people because they're already scared. Um, And that is what has motivated them to, to act, right? Like, I, I am really struck by the amount of fear of fear on, in the environmental movement. I, I don't understand it. It's like, you, for, for a movement full of nerds, they sure act like a group of people that's never been bullied before. And therefore, they can't identify gaslighting when it happens. Yeah. You know, like, well, if we, if we go too far with the message, then the Republicans won't like us. They're never going to like you. They're never going to fucking like you, yeah. right? Like, they just... They're never going to, like, sign up for regular. Right, exactly. They're just, like, watching you from a distance, like, quit hitting yourself or stop hitting yourself, right? Like, so, yeah, I, I feel like I'm seeing not only the door being knocked down, but, like, the walls being knocked down by this, by this new generation with how urgent they feel, how, like, how far they're willing to go with their messaging because, like, it's literally impossible to overstate it. It's impossible to go too far. And we've been way too tepid for way too long. So I, I think that that's 
amazing. And what we need to see more of is more voices from the global south. Like it's still upsetting to me that um, I don't see them getting the same platform that I see, you know, Greta is awesome. She's amazing. She definitely deserves to be celebrated. But I'm seeing activists in Uganda like really struggle to get their voices out there. Activists in Colombia really struggling to get their voices out there. Um, and it's sad because they are really putting their lives on the line. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised to find out that, that Greta is putting her life on the line as well, simply because of how visible she is and the vitriol that women get in public spaces. So she deserves to be protected too. She is a child too, and she deserves to have a platform too. But so do these other kids. For a community that prides itself on a scientific nuance, there's a very little room or very little patience for nuance about anything that's not science. Environmental spaces. Yes. Yeah, right. It's like, so if I say that, you know, these other activists should be getting space and, you know, Greta is not the only one, immediately I'm seen as attacking Greta. Like, how? How are you able to understand molecules better than you're able to understand humans and human emotions? I don't understand this. I also think we need to be talking more about the true roots of the crisis. Um, not only because, like, if you're going to tell the truth, you need to tell all of it, and like, there's no such thing as being halfway truthful, but also because that can activate more people. Once you start drawing those connections, you activate more people, and it starts to bring it home that climate is not some separate issue. It is the context for literally everything else. That is what the word climate means. Um, and so if you care about anything, you have to care about climate. And the other, the inverse of that is also true. If you care about climate, you also have to care about everything, right? Like you can't care about climate and not care about voting rights and not care about reproductive rights and not yeah. care about prison reform. Um, so they all go hand in hand. And so this sort of like division, you know, divide and conquer strategy that has been really fucking effective with the fossil fuel industry. Um, it's time to start dismantling that. And I also caught up with Mary on the phone recently and pushed record because she dropped some more gems on this subject. There tends to be a fear of going towards the vulnerable. And that's what I think we actually need for this type of storytelling. Because we're not trying to change what people know. We're trying to change what people believe. And those are very different things. Uh, and so to change what people believe, you need to reach them through their hearts, I believe. I think that we need to get them. And, and this is what I'm always trying to do in my writing, is to force people into a position that's so vulnerable that yeah. their heart is open. And I, I, I think, you know, when you say that you, the way to a person's heart is through their stomach, I think there's something to that. You have to gut punch them. To get to their heart, and I think you have to go through the heart to get to their brain. David Wallace Wells also had some really interesting stuff to say about just how the story on climate has changed, even just in the years since he finished his book. I definitely see things really, really different from where they were when I first turned in the manuscript, which was last September. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that sort of storytelling strategies is one big part of that. I mean, I think 
really in the immediate aftermath of the IPCC report last October, I think things really changed. And that's, I think, because that report was issued in much more urgent terms and then talked about by the people who put it together to the press um, in even more urgent terms than really any equivalent scientific body, any report produced by an equivalent scientific body had done before. And I think that that gave sanction to people who had been um, feeling that the story was scarier and more demanding than they may have themselves felt comfortable expressing to the public. But I also think that it inspired, and this is the big second thing that I um, see changing, which I think actually a bit more about, it inspired um, just, I think of as an unprecedented political mobilization really globally. So, you know, Greta's school strikes and Extinction Rebellion and, uh, you know, Sunrise here. Um, and then how quickly all of that has actually started to shape real politics, I think, is and policy is kind of incredible. You know, I, I might have in September told you, first of all, I didn't think that those kinds of protest movements were at all likely. But I might have also said, even if they did come to pass, I'm not sure how effective they would be because, you know, I look back on Occupy Wall Street and, you know, the protests against the Iraq war and, the, you know, the WTO protests. And I see there can be huge mobilizations um, that really have no impact at all. But with climate, things have been, even on that score, yeah, changing really rapidly, much more dramatically than I would have expected. So it's not just that Extinction Rebellion happened in the UK. It's that they basically got the government to declare a climate emergency and then to commit a conservative government to commit to going zero carbon by 2050, which is, you know, not as fast as probably you and I would like, but still like so much better than has ever been the case before. Mm -hmm. You know, in the US, we're debating a Green New Deal to some extent. And all of the major presidential candidates, while I wish they were talking about climate more, are engaged in a kind of an arms race of climate seriousness that is would have been unthinkable a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, all over the world, you're seeing, um, at least at the level of commitment to um, zero carbon, carbon neutral um, uh, futures, you're seeing countries all around the world and maybe even more dramatically cities all around the world, states around the world making those kinds of commitments. And that's really different. And, you know, the book, I think it's quite careful to say that we will write the future. It's not beyond our control and nothing is yet set in stone. But it also was quite skeptical that we could do all that much to change course. And I still think we're doing collectively, not doing nearly enough. Um, and we're still almost certain to encounter climate scenarios that you and I today and certainly people of a generation older than us would have thought were totally unconscionable. And yet I think that there's also a lot more reason for optimism that we can avoid at least the kind of worst case um, situations that the book deals with at some length because they struck me at the time as being quite plausible futures. They now seem to me to be, you know, the plausible futures are somewhat sunnier, although they're still quite ugly. I do think that the climate space and movement and um, even, you know, some of, you know, David Wallace Wells narratives, um, oh, particularly around 
you know, the doom conversation and the, um, and the sort of technocratic fix conversation, it's very male. I think that women do bring, like even all of this incredible content by like Reese Witherspoon and Hello Sunshine and yeah. like Big Little Lies or just like, I love that like Hollywood is starting to really embrace like content that's driven by women and people of color, like Black yeah. Panther and like, you know, Ava DuVernay and like all of these incredible, those to me offer such a, such a, I don't know. I love, I just love watching things that are made by women. Like yeah. I think it's, they tend to have more nuanced perspectives on things and fresh perspectives on things. Cause right. let's be honest, like Hollywood, like the climate space and like almost every space in American society has been largely <laughs> driven by white dudes, you yeah. know? And that's, and so I think, I think there is definitely an extension of that to climate narratives as well. It's why we started No Place Like Home, the podcast that me and Marianne hit do. Uh, it was like we were in this super male space. There was no space for us to have these more vulnerable, raw um, conversations and even emotional and spiritual conversations. Yeah. You know, like that. This whole idea that like those things are weak or shameful should be kept private or not like, like important enough you <laughs> yeah. know like right silly. and we were like yeah, yeah. silly like a, a nice i mean i think climate the climate movement in general has kind of looked at communications and content in general like a nice a nice to have like yeah but it's critical like how we how we tell these stories changes how people feel about them which changes how they act which yeah. changes the political situation and yeah. so it is and it's a huge Huge gap in my mind. Yeah. That we have not. And you know who doesn't do that? Hmm. The fucking fossil fuel industry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're all about gut instincts, lizard brain, how you feel. Yeah. And like going straight for that. Well, and if you look and not to suggest that the climate movement needs to be emulating the fossil fuel industry or any other kind of corporation. It wouldn't hurt. But yeah. look at, I mean, the reason <laughs> that businesses spend an enormous amount of money on marketing is because yes. it's. It helps, you know, and like, if you look at the budget, you know, like it's, and it's why I'm, I'm so excited about the Good Energy Project, my, my new project working with writers and storytellers and content creators, because I do just think it's been a huge, huge gap. And, and it's very important that we start quickly filling it. enjoyed it and I just want to remind you that if you would like to go back and listen to the other um, part of this series the kind of bad climate narratives that we want to see less of you can do so on a drilled podcast wherever you find your podcast and thanks again to our dear friend Amy Westervelt our fellow climate woman lady badass podcaster for having me it was such a joy and an honor All right, y'all, we will be back so soon with our new season of No Place Like Home, and we can't wait to bring that to you, climate change and spirituality. It's going to be a powerful season, so get ready. Thanks to the amazing band River Wireless for our theme music, and to our sponsor, the Sierra Club. This episode was produced by Allison Wilson, who is our new producer on this season. Welcome, Allison. We are so excited to have you on board. Yay! Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. And you can join the conversation in between episodes or let us know what's on your mind at our Twitter page, which is at NPLH Podcast. So follow us there and tweet at us. 
And remember, there's no place like home.